Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. My name is Stuart MacDonald and my co-host is Colin Cameron. The podcast is part of the I Was Going To Charity and each week we interview successful people to find out how they achieved their success. This information from the podcast is then edited into what we call golden nuggets and used within presentations to inform and inspire young people. This week's guest is John Mackay, Scottish broadcast journalist, television presenter, producer and writer. John Mackay, thanks very much for joining us here in the I Was Going To Podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you this afternoon. Thank you for having me. I'm interested in if you can contribute to helping all for us. It's much appreciated. Thanks for joining us, as I say, John. John, I, I, I keep sounding like a broken down record every time I ask this question, but we started just as the pandemic started recording these podcasts. In some respects, it's a, a very interesting historical journey that we've had, but we didn't expect it to be with us almost two years uh, mm. in, in the journey. has been quite an incredible and very unusual. And the first question that we ask everybody is, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? Well, I absolutely unique time uh, none of us have ever experienced it in our lives before but for me actually it hasn't been hugely different i've still been coming into uh, stv studios here at pacific key still been delivering the news at most nights there have been short periods of furlough but generally speaking um my day-to-day routine has been much the same doing the same job that i've been doing um the difference is that there are far fewer people in the building there is a news team but it's a reduced news team a lot of people working from home but also most of the other people who are working in stv uh were working from home as well so uh, it was a strange atmosphere although it's now become the the normal for us that it's it's quiet um but in terms of day-to-day pretty much I was still doing what I was always doing. Uh, what I have noticed is that in the early days of the pandemic, driving into STV, the motorways were all but deserted. And for the last few months, you know, that's clearly not the case. So that, that I'm actually noticing uh, a bigger change now than uh, the, there was the instant change of nobody being around. Then that gradually became the normal. And I'm noticing a different change now as people begin to return to what was pre-pandemic normal. Well, one of the things, John, that we, we, we discussed, and I discussed this yesterday actually with another guest, that, and it is simply that uh, we should be looking at these opportunities, in our opinion, just to maybe think about what uh, our transport system should look like. Because if we were able to still continue at a lesser level, obviously, when we first started in the pandemic, but most companies have now used the technology to be able to benefit ourselves, to be able to work from home. And as I said yesterday, in some respects, some of the companies that we've been talking to have actually found an increase in productivity with people working from home, which is that aspect of if you're happier in your own environment, that ability to be happy actually increases productivity. Question I have, John, because of course you're immersed in it because everybody, especially at the beginning, was glued to their tellies, thinking, yeah. oh, what else is coming out? I mean, so, and you're at the sharp end of it. You've obviously got this material coming in and you've got to deliver it. So you must have been absolutely at the forefront of what is going on and try to really, I don't know what, I can imagine what your studio was like during all of that at first. It was, um, I would say I probably was better off in that regard than many of my colleagues because my colleagues were actually having to go out to, um, with, within uh, the restrictions imposed by COVID. Uh, but my colleagues were out 
at people's houses, albeit outside the houses. They were having to report from care homes. Uh, they were out and about. I was pretty much uh, always uh, in the studio. Um, so I I wasn't maybe as exposed to it as some of, uh, of them were. Um, so it was difficult for them. However, the other side of that is that, uh, as you say, we were at the forefront of delivering um, uh, that sometimes deeply disturbing figures to people about uh, increased number of cases, increased number of deaths, um, ICU, hospitalizations, all of that stuff. So uh, sometimes you're going on and sometimes it's easy to get blasé when you're given these figures because they're repeated so often. Uh, and you shouldn't lose sight of the fact of how dramatic and how important these are. And actually, that's beginning, yeah. you know, we're, we're speaking September, that's beginning to pick up again, although hopefully the, the link between cases and hospitalizations is, is not as obvious as, as it once was, and that's where, that's where we would hope to be. Um, so you were very conscious of the fact that you were delivering sometimes deeply disturbing news. And the second part of that, or another part of that, was that our audiences soared because people wanted to find out what was happening. And we hear an awful lot about people going on social media to get their news, which is true. Uh, but the traditional media, certainly of, of uh, a news digest at the end of each day in the television, it showed there was a demand for that. Our audience is soaring. Well, I just thought about because I thought about it from your side, thinking, my yeah. goodness, these guys have got to deliver this message. How do you, you've got to put that face on as well. So you do. I mean, you know, we we were deeply disturbed by it as well. You know, it affected, we, we, we live in our communities. We, we saw what's happening. So, but you have to deliver the information. That That is the job. That's always been the job. And that always will be the job. It was interesting times as well. I remember watching CNN uh, over that period because there was a lag between what was occurring in New York because they were ahead of us with regards to the pandemic and the way in which the mayor of New York was actually pushing that information and projecting it on a daily basis. And it was quite an interesting uh, relationship watching what was occurring there and what was yet to occur potentially within Scotland and the United Kingdom. So as Colin uh, said, the news was uh, very much uh, an important factor within that. And we have mm. to uh, say thank you to you guys for delivering that because it was an essential Certainly. an essential thing over that <clears throat> period. Yeah, yeah, it was fascinating to be involved in it. It's it's unlike anything we've done before, um, and that's what we do. That you know, it, it, news is what we. That's our business, and it was a huge story, and and you want to be involved in huge stories. Unfortunately, of course, it it caused a lot of damage. Uh, people died, businesses disrupted, um, but that's what news often is. And and as I say, that's part of the job. You just have to report it as best you can. So it's fascinating to talk because yeah. thinking about how John's formed the story, I think you guys actually, if anything, have had an opportunity to show how everything connects. Now, because of this, I think you guys have been able to explain because sometimes, you know, in the past, some news articles might be tangential to people's lives. But when mm. you think, you know, the transport, your job, your office, how you shop, what you do, all of it's now connected because the way Absolutely. you've had to portray it, you know, how it's panned out. So I think it's there's some pluses out of this in some ways that people have been much more aware of what's an essential job and all the rest of it. But also uh, tough, tough to do, tough to do. Yes, absolutely. Sorry, Stuart. Sorry, Stuart. No, no, absolutely. Mm. No, it's it's it, it's almost a podcast in itself. It's going back to it's going back to the very early days of of what we talked about. But, yeah. but John, we want to find out about yourself uh, mm. and. 
You were born and educated in Scotland, and uh, we went to really just sort of delve into a wee bit more about that. I'm smiling because I know which school you went to because you were <laughs> you were you were just behind me within the years. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying how old I am, but you were you were you were much younger than me, John. Not much younger, I don't think. Well, maybe a year or so in it, as I recall. Um, so how, how did you find your time at uh, and your education? So I went to Hillington Primary School in Glasgow, which I loved, had a great time there, really enjoyed it. I then went to Penley Secondary School, uh, which I think was a classic example of a comprehensive. It was a good mix of maybe more affluent families and less well-off families. And um, so that that gave you a real sense of, of um, what society was. And, and uh, I think that was important. At that time, I didn't really see it as that. I just thought as I really enjoyed being at school. I was the sort of guy that get involved in stuff. I played football, um, did... Uh, you know, did school shows and stuff like that. I just enjoyed being involved in things. Uh, what I maybe wasn't so great at was actually working at education, which is what you're supposed to do. Um, but my time at both primary and secondary, very happy memories, um, really enjoyed it. In different times, obviously, and the school actually has now been uh, made way for new houses, as anything seems to, but I was very happy at school. Uh, I then went to Glasgow University uh, to study politics and uh, economics and, and stuff like that. I didn't enjoy the university so much. Um, I think, again, it came down to that at school, you were told what to do. Uh, at university, you were left more to your own devices. I possibly didn't take to that so well. I think I would enjoy that far more now. Uh, but the big thing for me at university was uh, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, and they had a university newspaper there, the Glasgow University Guardian. And my intention was to work on that and possibly edit that, and ultimately that's what I did. So I actually lay more store by editing this student university newspaper uh, than my degree, which is a, a pretty ordinary degree. Um, so unusually for me, most people who go on to higher education would probably regard that as the best time of their education career. I, I actually would take a different view. I, I preferred school. Did, did you get any career advice or did you actually know when you were leaving <laughs> school what it was that you actually wanted to do? Well, I, I was very lucky because um, I knew I enjoyed writing. I always did enjoy writing. And there was a teacher at Penley called Lindsay MacDonald, who, whom you may remember, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, she was an English teacher and she recognised my enjoyment in writing and suggested, have you ever thought of journalism as a career? And I never had. Um, and had you ever thought of writing a, a book somewhere down the line? I never had thought of that either. And ultimately... I have now done both of these things, and I, I would lay credit to her for putting me on that path. Uh, the importance of a teacher raising your horizons, particularly for working-class kids going to a working-class school, is crucial. Um, the difference between people who go from state schools and people who come from private schools in the industry is much of it is down to confidence as much as anything else. Um, so to have a teacher to say... Uh, have you thought of this? Is this something you've ever considered when you haven't is, is for me, vitally important. In terms of formal um, careers advice, you would have a meeting with a careers advisor. I'd sit down, do you know what you want to do? Yes, I want to be a journalist. And, and I would come away with a note saying, uh, we think the best course for John to follow would be journalism, because I've just told them that. <laughs> uh, so in, ter in terms of formal career advice, waste of time. In terms of a teacher raising my horizons, absolutely crucial. A great answer because it is so important that you get confidence at school, uh, and in many respects, what you've just described of that uh, 
uh, inspiration, I suppose, from a teacher is is critical in those early years, that uh, you can increase your confidence and that confidence, just that small amount, is sufficient for you to be able to target what you're wanting to do in a later mm. stage. I think, John, you highlighted one thing that we hadn't talked about before in other, uh, other podcasts. I think the point is that I went through the same. You suddenly have to self-manage when you leave school yeah. and go to university. I mean, it's different if you went out and had a working life, went back to university. But as a young young one going into university, um, I don't quite know what it's like now, but it seems to be that people are a bit more prepared because they've got to do a bit more at secondary yeah. school themselves to be a bit more project-orientated before they go to university. So maybe there's a bit better preparation. But for us, it's cold turkey. You're right. We were told, here's your homework, that's your structure, that's what you've got to do. Ah. Suddenly, you're, you know, you can go to a lecture or you don't. Right? <laughs> uh, and if it's a Monday morning, you might not want to. You know, that, that was a completely different uh, style. Yeah. So I, I know what you mean. That, that's, that's something, Stuart, that we haven't yeah. really thought about that, that bit of it. Well, in some respects, Marissa sort of touched upon it, that the development stage is different from uh, for everybody, that some people develop faster and have that maturity to be able to transcend from a school structure that we've just discussed to the university where, where it is very much self-management that's required. Uh, but I suppose it comes back to that people developing in different uh, d- different uh, timescales, Colin. But yeah, very interesting, right. Right. Uh, very interesting yep. point. So yeah. you developed from there, John, uh, you very quickly moved into being a, a journalist <clears throat> within the Sunday Post. Can you tell us yeah. how that opportunity came about? So I had um, graduated from Glasgow University. As I say, for me, the bigger value was having edited the student newspaper. So I did what everyone does. I was applying here, there and everywhere. I'd, I'd been a newspaper boy delivering the Evening Times around Hillington for many, many years. I had a couple of letters published in the Evening Times and a couple of letters, the £10 letter in the Shoot Football magazine, for example. So clearly I thought I was a career for journalism was mine for the taking, but it doesn't quite work out like that. Um, so I, I had uh, applied to various newspapers. Um, wasn't I was particularly interested in the Herald uh, and the Evening Times. I thought I could get, could have had a wee bit of work experience there. If I could get into the Evening Times... But they didn't take on trainees at that point in time. Um, and I had a place lined up at City University in London to do a postgraduate in journalism. And I, I was headed there. I mean, my course booked and all the rest of it. Um, and I just as, almost as a last moment called, called on the Sunday Post, followed up in a letter that I'd sent to them. Um, they used to have offices, still do, but there were bigger offices at Kirk Gardens in Glasgow, uh, Portland Das. And actually, um, they took me on. I, I was taken on with the Sunday Post. So that cancelled my uh, course at, in City University. Because I think if I had gone to London, I, I imagine I would have stayed there. I, I would imagine, as as we are often told in Scotland, particularly then, all roads lead to London, um, particularly in the media. Mm-hmm. I still get told that now. Um, so... Uh, I was very lucky to get that job at the Sunday Post. Um, you know, I think I'm sure that the that editorship of the student newspaper had helped. My interest had helped. And, uh, you know, I, for me, it was a great relief that I didn't have to go to London because I, I was very happy where I was. John, you then moved uh, into the BBC in 1987 as a news yeah. trainee for Radio Scotland. Yeah. So you were moving from journalism into Radio Scotland and the, the, the radio side of things. Can you tell us how that came about as well? 
Well, I, I didn't go in with the expectation of being a presenter at all. And I would also say that uh, when I was a student, I had um, I'd gone to Radio Clyde for some work experience. I'd sent in a tape recording. I'd spent a day at Radio Clyde. I'd been told by uh, the person at Radio Clyde, um, you've not got a voice for broadcasting, son, so this isn't for you. Um, and because because my ambition had been newspaper anyway, I thought, well, fair enough, that just clears that one up for me. Um, so I was at the Sunday Post. I was I had a good time at the Sunday Post. I was well looked after and began to build up my experience. And BBC Radio Scotland advertised for news trainees. And it was uh, my a girlfriend at the time, my wife, and my best, one of my best mates, a guy called Murdo, whom you know, yeah. both independently saw this advert and said, you thought of that? You should try it. Why would I have been told I don't have a voice for broadcasting? So partly from curiosity, partly from just chancing it, um, and, and curiosity, as I say, to see inside the BBC, I applied for the, for the job. I went through a whole process. I think because I had no expectation, I wasn't particularly uptight about it, and a wee bit of uh, experience behind me. Whatever it was, um, they saw something in me and, and took me on. And it was a pr- pretty, um, it was a, several thousand people applied for a limited number of spaces. So it's still, for me, that was a huge breakthrough for me. That, that was put my career in a completely different path because at that point, up until that point, my uh, whole ambition had been, uh, as I say, to work at the Herald or the Glasgow Herald as it then was. Uh, so broadcasting hadn't really been my horizon, particularly after my experience at Radio Play. So I went into Radio Scotland, but again, it wasn't with a view to being a presenter. It was a view to being a journalist. I started off as a sub-editor producing hourly news bulletins, which I really enjoyed, loved that. And the great thing about the BBC was you had the opportunity to do various things. So I did pretty much everything. I became a, something of a jack-of-all-trades. So I would uh, produce small bulletins. I produced bigger programmes. I ended up doing a bit of reporting. Yes, a bit of presenting as well. I'd get used to live broadcasting. So it was a, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, and it all came from that, that one opportunity that I, that I decided, well, why not? I'll go for it. And, and I made the most of it. Um, but it wasn't part of any plan. Sounds like, John, you, you were getting a lot of the, the, the sort of tools of the trade from getting different, diverse things to do. So there's obviously, it sounded like you were learning on the job there, and that, that was actually the fun part of it. That's a, what you say there is, for me, is absolutely key. There are training courses, most jobs are training courses. Um, my experience, and I've done a few of them myself, my experience, the best training was always on the job. That's that's how I learned better than any other way. Being up against the deadline, knowing something had to be delivered, uh, you, you can't really be taught that. You just have to do it. Um, and also watching, so for example, uh, the night of the Lockerbie bombing, uh, the, the, when the plane came down, just I learned more that night watching a couple of senior colleagues than I ever would have at three, four years of, of, of college. So mm. um, it, it, learning on the job for me is, is is absolutely vital. But yes, you're absolutely right. I learned an awful lot by doing an awful lot. Uh, and part of that was me um, putting myself forward for these things. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Um, because mm-hmm. I wanted to be, become better at what I did. Mm-hmm. John, I'm yeah. curious. What, what one thing that you said there was that uh, you sort of almost skimmed over it, but I'm, I'm curious as to the effect that it had on you. With Radio Clyde, uh, I, I'm not sort of saying it was a quote unquote that you gave us, but mm. uh, they said you don't have a voice for radio. How how did you find that? How did you react to it at that point? Did that give you? Had you sufficient resilience at that point to say, no, I'm not going to take that to heart? Well, as I say, I had no plan to be a presenter. I, what I saw myself as being was a, was a reporter, a journalist. Um, I also, my ambition 
was to write for newspapers. So I had gone into Radio Clyde. They'd been kind enough to let me come in for some work experience. And I had enjoyed the experience. I thought, actually, maybe this would be quite good. But at the end of the day, when I was told you don't have a voice for it, I think I you know, just confirmed probably, well, I, I kind of felt that anyway. So, yeah, I was disappointed because I enjoyed the experience. But it wasn't a hammer blow or anything like that. And I certainly didn't set out to prove anybody wrong. No, that, that wasn't the case. It is very possible. I don't know. It's very possible that at the time I was still very young. As I say, I was from Glasgow. You know, maybe over the course of the day, was I beginning to drop a tease and that? No, um, I don't think so. I don't think I was. I don't think I was that daft. But you know, it's possible. That, you know, that's something like that. I don't quite know what it was. Um, but no, it wasn't. It wasn't a devastating blow. It just kind of confirmed what I really thought already. Anyway. And then you quickly developed your skills, as you've just said, that you were learning on the job at the BBC as a yeah. reporter, presenter, producer for both radio and television. Was there any aspects of that that you you, you, you thought this is fantastic uh, experience or was it all just a, all a, a universal yeah, really, experience? Really. I enjoyed the buzz of, so for example, when I worked at the Sunday Post, it was a weekly newspaper, it was a Sunday newspaper. Um, what I loved, uh, particularly when I went into radio, was the fact this was every hour, every hour, every hour you had to produce. And I really got a buzz from that. Um, actually, still miss that in a kind of way. Um, uh, but I probably didn't enjoy producing so much. I knew that I wanted to report. I wanted to be out front um, writing the reports, recording the reports. I, I knew that. I knew I preferred that to actually putting a programme together, which is very difficult uh, and is a completely different skill. Um, and I did it, and I did it, and I, you know, I, I, I did it perfectly effectively, but I never, um, I never felt uh, this is what I want to do. Um, and it tends to be split, and broadcasting tends to be split down two ways, producing or reporting, and I, and I always prefer the reporting side of things. Um, my early experience was, in fact, most of my experience was in radio, um, which I really enjoyed. There was a lot of control. You had a lot of individual control over that. It wasn't so many different technical aspects involved. Um, so there was a lot of freedom with it as well. Uh, and I did so many different roles. I was a sports correspondent for a year, and I thought, you know, I really might, this might be what I want to do. Uh, I had done sport, kind of, I used to report on Saturday games on top of my news stuff, but for a year, around about a year or so, I just focused entirely on sport. Um, I've always been a football fan, so I thought this would be great. Uh, and actually, I didn't enjoy it so much. I, I missed news, I missed the buzz of news. And if a big news story was breaking and I'm sitting there, you know, doing yet another injury story, somebody else has got a groin strain, you know, it just, I, I felt, no, I, I, I'd rather be a football supporter than enjoy the sport than um, report on it. So uh, what it emphasised to me was I, I was a news person. And that's what I enjoyed doing. So great experience. And then latterly I went into television. Again, just to expand the experience. Um, and maybe, obviously, I, I maybe had a thought, I, I might enjoy reporting on television as well. My confidence in broadcasting is up by this time. Um, so I, I, they ended up uh, putting me, I became what you call by media. So that meant I did reporting on radio and on television. And they started, they gave me some screen tests on television. I began presenting bulletins there. I presented report in Scotland on a few occasions. I wouldn't want to overstate that. I tended to. <coughs> Present report in Scotland on the nights that nobody else wanted to do it, so home and eight and things like that. John Jermaine. Uh, so that, that's how I ended up doing that kind of stuff. Make it, you know, as I say, everything was always about taking an opportunity uh, and making the most of it. So that was pretty much my experience at the BBC. Thoroughly enjoyed it, really enjoyed my time there. I was just going to make a parallel, John, because uh, I think what I can relate to there is that I can sense you, you enjoy the field work and the hands on uh, actually crafting 
the words and making the report, making the impact. Um, the relation to that I can relate to is that I, I was in a job before I went to them through, I was in a job where I was working on the field all the time. I had construction sites in various places, a very large area to look after. I came back to a job in Renfrew at Babcock and they shot me in an office and stuck a computer PC <laughs> in the end of my desk and they said, that's the job. And I'm going, you're joking. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I had to find my way out to the factory to find out what's actually going on. You have to make <laughs> stuff. So before yeah. I knew it, I was involved in a lot of other things. But, uh, yeah. but you, you, I, I, you must have a tendency, I'm curious, uh, you must have a tendency as well that you, you can still relate to that what you did then even mm. now you're an anchor and you're in the, the studio you can still relate to the guys out there who are doing it absolutely yeah imagine. it's yeah it's 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 slightly different now for, for long enough i can always say to reporters well i've done what you did um it's yeah. slightly different now more an awful lot of the times now reporters are, are filming their own reports um having to take their own camera gear and all the rest of it. So uh, it's a slightly different from when I did it. Uh, but yeah, I, I always enjoyed it. What I would say about that, though, is why I was quite happy to make the move full-time or permanently into to, uh, presenting, is that on any given day, you would do your own story, and this is pre-social media. So um, your focus would be very much on your story and you'd come back in at the end of the day, getting your report ready for the programme that night and you'd hear all sorts of other things that have been happening. And you'd, wow, wow, that's a great story, that's a great story. And you weren't really aware of it. Whereas now I'm pretty much across most things that are happening. Um, so, uh, and I enjoy that, I enjoy that overview. Um, uh, but no, I, 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 you enjoy the buzz of deadlines. That's that's part of the thrill of what I do. Um, there's a real, there's a real adrenaline thing to it. And that's, um, you never kind of lose that. If you do lose it, you ought to chuck it. Yeah, I think the other side of it must be you must get adrenaline as well. The fact that you're in front of a live camera. Right. So yeah. And if you're you, from a bad thing, a good thing. I think I actually some yeah. people like it, some people don't. But I can imagine yeah. you get the adrenaline on that as well. Yeah, I think if you ever lost that, that would be you know that if you go in there blasé, you've always got to be professional about it. Most common question. One of the most common questions I'm asked is, uh, "Do you get nervous?" And and not really. I don't anymore. Um, but there's certainly a kind of there's an adrenaline there that you've got to uh, mm. you just you've got to be up for it. That because oh. if you go in all casual and all relaxed, then that's when you're going to make mistakes. You've got there's got mm. to be a to what you're doing, and it's part of it's part of what I enjoy about the job. That's why I call the edge. It's that nah. edge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that, we, we we've obviously not done what you've done, but uh, public speaking, I think, is the only sort of similar thing I could relate to on that. At first you get, you talk like a machine gun, you get nervous when you're first doing it. After a while you get used to it. But you never lose that a little gen, generation of adrenaline to, to drive yeah. you and, and, and actually try to get the response from the audience. So I actually find that harder. I find public speaking harder. I don't do that much. Um, I tend to like, you know, one of my jobs done, that, that's me done. I, I don't tend to do much in a, extra, but I, I find it uh, more nerve-wracking talking in front of a small room or a small group than I ever do broadcasting to hundreds of thousands. It's a strange thing, partly because you can see them, I suppose. You know what their reaction is. Um, but, yeah, I find that actually – and, yes, of course, you get more comfortable with it. But it's – it's. Uh, it, it, I, I would prefer to broadcast to hundreds of thousands than stand up in the wings. <laughs> 
And John, just just before we move on to uh, Scottish television, I, I, I'm not sure whether it was BBC or SDV, but I just thought I would ask you the question about, you, you were talking about uh, covering sports. Mm. And uh, one of the times, I, I just remember you being out in Seville, and I just wondered if you maybe want to uh, say, is that one of your career highlights? It was. I'll tell you, so I was over in Seville. <laughs> it actually, in one sense it is, in one sense it isn't. So... It, it was because there was a great atmosphere. The Celtic supporters were all in great form, and it was, you know, it was a beautiful place to be, and all of that. So that was that was great. I didn't actually have a ticket for the game, um, so which is fair enough because we were broadcasting immediately after and all the rest of it. Um, and there was, you know, there was, for example, I remember standing in the middle of Seville Square at eleven o'clock in the morning doing the eleven o'clock bulletin, standing stop in, in the middle of all this fans <laughs> on top of a camera box and getting hitting the head with rubber hammers and all the rest of it. So it was a great atmosphere. It was good fun. And enjoying it. And there an awful lot of stories from that period. Um, however, most unfortunately, on the night of the game, and every football club has them, there was a group of, I don't know, half a dozen um, angry, disappointed people. Don't know what the problem was, but every club has them. Um, and they were trying to cause trouble and end up throwing bottles, one of which hit me in the head and knocked me down. So... Although I had a great experience in Seville and the Celtic fans were great, that is always at the back of my mind. I was actually knocked down by, by a bottle. There's a lot. This isn't the place for that, I suppose. But I, I remember it, um, you know, having to get doctor treat, medical treatment, all the rest of it, which took away from it a wee bit. Um, slightly different. Uh, I was in Manchester as well for Rangers in the AFA Cup in 2008. And that was a slightly different experience. Um, I, I think there was less of a holiday atmosphere. There was an awful lot more people there. Um, and I just don't think it, it was, uh, it wasn't, I don't remember that as fondly. If you take the bottle thing out of it, the Seville experience was great. The, uh, the the Manchester one, possibly not so much. I think maybe a few people would say the same. There was about 200,000 people, was that right? That was just what? overcrowded. It was, it was unbelievable, that. Yeah. But I just, it's just classic Scotland invades England. Wasn't yeah, <laughs> the point is most people were in great form, you know, certainly yeah. Manchester, there was people there from Melbourne, they were saying, oh, this is fantastic, having a great time. Thanks for listening to the I Was Going to Charity podcast. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode and this week's guest. I hope you don't mind me asking, but the podcast is part of the I Was Going to Charity and we're always looking for donations to support the musical experiences and presentations which we provide. Every pound donated helps us to try and inspire and motivate the next generation. If you can spare a moment, we'd really appreciate if you could go to our Just Giving website at www.justgiving.com forward slash Tamasgoni. Thanks for your donation and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. So, John, we've sort of alluded to some of this, but in 1994 you joined STV as a reporter and presenter. And you're yeah, now well, currently uh, the chief anchor at uh, SDV for both uh, SDV News at Six, and you also uh, are the current affairs program on Scotland Tonight as well. So yeah. you must be really proud of both of those programs because they're fantastic programs. Well, I am. Yeah, that, that's fair to say. We, we, um, I was presenting bulletins. I think I said for the BBC latterly and on TV, and it was through that that STV approached me and said, "Do, do you want to join us as a as a reporter presenter?" Principally a reporter, backup presenter, and I took that opportunity. Um, really enjoyed it. I rapidly developed my television reporting experience, but within the first month, I had to present um, 
what was then in Scotland today. Um, and over the years, the balance, I would do reporting and then stand in presenting, but over the course of maybe three, four years, the balance shifted, so I was beginning to do more presenting than I was reporting. And around about 1998, I think it was, thereabouts, um, it became pretty much I was a presenter as opposed to uh, reporting. Um, and so STD News, it really connects with its audience. Um, you know, I like to think that we're more in touch with our audience. Um, and at this point in time, you know, for the last few years, we, we, our audiences have been, have been significantly higher uh, than other programs. So I think maybe people connect with that. So really proud of STV, uh, STV News. Uh, then there was, in 2011, there was a uh, first SNP majority government. So when that happened, we knew, uh, right, there's going to be an independence referendum now. And we, at that point in time, didn't really have a program that covered it. We did do a political program, uh, but we felt if there's going to be an independence referendum, we have to be at the forefront of it. That's what uh, when Scotland Tonight was launched uh, in 2011. It's its 10th anniversary next month, October uh, 2021, is the 10th anniversary. Um, and that gave me a completely uh, different experience from the constant role of hard news. Uh, you were looking at different subjects. Our, our theme pretty much was that people are talking about it and we should be, we should be doing it. Um, and it's allowed me to meet some fascinating people, um, both in the political world, but also elsewhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, I think we started off thinking if, if we get a 50,000 audience, uh, you know, we'll, or thereabouts or what they call a share. So if we get a 5% share of every 100 people watching the television at that time at night, five of them are watching us, 5% share, that's good. Well, our average is way more than that. Our first program was about 11, 12%. So, you know, it's always a bit performed above expectations. Uh, and yeah, I absolutely, I'm very proud of that, to be involved in that from its uh, inception to now is great. So it's been a fascinating career. I, I, I genuinely count myself to be very lucky. See, when I think about it, John, I mean, uh, when I was a younger guy as well, uh, the two names that come to mind when I think about STV, because my parents were big fans of STV, mm. is John Toy and Bill yeah. Tennant. They yes. were absolute cornerstones at tea time. Everybody yeah. had to tell when they were there. I sometimes, sometimes people still refer to me as John Toy. So uh, yeah. yeah, I'm aware of. Yeah, nobody. I don't think I've ever been called Bill Tennant, but uh, but certainly <laughs> Tennant John was, Toy. Uh, John, yeah, John no, was I, a personality, huge personality. He was. Well. Interestingly, with John Toy, for example, he was he was actually an actor. So he wasn't he wasn't oh. a journalist as such. Bill Tennant, I'm not so sure. I think he probably was a journalist. I'm not so sure. Um, but that was that was quite often the way at the time that presentation was a very specific thing. It was a very specific role, quite often filled by actors. Um, whereas uh, more recently it's been people who have been journalistic experience who tend to do it. But yes, I'm, a, I'm very well aware of the names that went before. And from my era, it, it was people like uh, Shireen Nanjiani, uh, mm. who worked on both BBC and STV, and yeah. uh, for example. So that, that's when I started, they were the ones in the hot seat. And John, doing the current affairs programmes, uh, we, we ask all our guests uh, a couple of questions. And this must be a really interesting period. Uh, I'm not going to ask your political side of things, but with the tsunami of different economic environments that are occurring, with us coming out of the pandemic at a similar time as most other international countries, we've, we're all going to be chasing different uh, levels of the economy. 
we've got uh, the other aspects, which is Brexit, which has been very quiet during the pandemic. And in addition to that, we've got COP26, which I'm sure you're going to be covering very uh, uh, soon, if not already, uh, for all the renewables and sustainability news that is going to come from that. Just wanted a quick impression of what, you, you know, this is a pretty unique time. We see it as a huge opportunity for Scotland and the United Kingdom. Well, it's been a fascinating period my entire career, actually. So I started during the Thatcher era. I then covered the um, Blair coming into power and the creation of the... Well, I, I came out at the tail end of the Thatcher era, but uh, then Blair coming into power and the creation of the Scottish Parliament. And let's not forget, that was a big deal as well. Yeah. Um, then the, the Scottish Parliament, I suppose, for the first 10 years um, was... You know, it, it was finding its feet and all the rest of it. But I, I would say you're talking about the specific period we're in just now. I would say that period has pretty much been the case since around about 2011. So I th I'd say the past 10 years, it's been a long period of intense uh, political activity, uh, intense political debate, uh, both in Scotland and uh, <clears throat> and uh, more broadly across the UK. Uh, and it's very much come into focus now. But um, I think it's been a rolling period. We've had so many elections, we've had referendums, we've had, uh, and now we've had COVID. So um, I wouldn't say it's just now, I'd say it's been a, a rolling, um, it's been rolling like that for the past 10 years, just one thing after the other, after the other, sometimes merging into each other. Can I just say on the beginning of the, when we talked about the pandemic, I know it's bringing it back into it again, but uh, it's, just, it's a similar thing. All these things that are happening, um, you guys trying to, bring the story together, it's actually an education again for the public because people who hear the word Brexit and they, they think one thing or they think another or they, they can't see how it fits in with their life. You guys are then having to try and bring all this into some sensible story that tells yeah. you how this affects your life. So that, that's, always, I mean, you've got background in some uh, economics that you've studied, but bringing it all into you, this is your chance to bring it into to some sort of sense for the public to understand it all. Is that the challenge? Well, that is the challenge, yeah. Um, sometimes it's a challenge for us to make sense of it, you know, because some, <laughs> some of the things that are happening, you go, what? Um, but that, that is absolutely our job. Is, is um, I mean, the public aren't daft. That's one thing I, I no. is very clear. The public are actually smarter than sometimes I think politicians in the media bubble give them credit for. Um, but absolutely, that is what we, uh, how, how do we explain this to people? How does it impact on people's lives? And um, one of the things about STD is what we're, all, what we're always looking for is, have we got an example? Have we got an example? Somebody, an individual, a company, whatever, um, who've been impacted by whatever it is we have to be covering. Um, mm -hmm. Because that, that makes it um, easier tangible to understand. Tangible. Yeah. Than, yeah, tangible, exactly. Uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, academic discussions about it. Well, how does it impact? It's exactly as you say. How does it impact on people? So um, that's what we have to. Uh, that's what we have to. That's our job. Mm. That's what we have to do. Not easy. If you if you work it out, please let us know. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in return, uh, it is an opportunity though. <laughs> Uh, we, we read in, back in February or March uh, that, uh, the, that the Hunter Foundation had written a report and it was a fascinating report that uh, was trying to raise a debate 
for general society, just to talk about how we tackle and increase the economy whilst tackling poverty. And and the, the, the pretext of the question is, what would you add to the debate? And I, I, some of our guests have, have been giving us some, some real insights from our perspective. I just wanted to ask you the, the same question. I uh, wrote a book uh, six years ago now called Notes of a Newsman, which essentially covered uh, my career uh, in, as a news reporter, um, and it, it, it's not a normal book as such. It is it's scripts over the years, STV scripts. It's notes I made at the time, um, and I mentioned that because almost one of the first stories I did was a strategy to tackle poverty, a campaign to tackle poverty. Now, we're how long have I been a journalist? Thirty-five years, something about all that, and we're still asking the same question. Um, I, I think. There's a lot of talk about how we tackle poverty. It is an extremely difficult thing to do because there's so many aspects to it. I certainly am I'm not an expert on it. Um, but there have been so many strategies, so many things over the years, and, and maybe what we need is, is some sort of consistency. And sometimes it comes down to you know to 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 uh, how you how you raise money for that. You know how do you pay for all of, all, all of these schemes? Mm. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't claim to have an answer for it. I think it's absolutely important that we have the have the debate. Um, and I wouldn't want to say this is what we need to do, that's what we need to do because um, it's, it's actually a very political thing and that's not an area I, I can get into um, but it has been a consistent theme throughout my uh, time as a journalist I'm, I'm not sure we, we ever have tackled it mm. John, do you actually get chance to leverage a bit and share with other uh, news colleagues in other parts of the country you know, in terms of uh, in England and Wales and, and Northern Ireland or anything like that? Do you do any well, cross-border type thing? STV is part of uh, the ITV network, which is, yeah. well, I, that's I, that's not strictly accurate. <laughs> STV is a separate company from, from ITV. But yeah, we share we share material, we share conversations, we share uh, a lot. And Scotland's slightly different from a lot of the English regions, you know, the familiar stuff mm. about being a nation, their own systems and all the rest of it. Uh, but yeah, we do, there is an awful lot uh, shared. Um, and particularly since Scotland Tonight started, we, we do that even even more so. Um, mm. And there are very, there are, you know, there are very similar issues around the, around the country. And, and poverty is is one that that's, I was going to say, with the exception of the southeast of England, I'm not even sure that's the case. There's poverty there as well, of course there is. Um, no. It's just been a, it's a running consistent uh, issue. It's systemic. It's systemic. It's so big. It's such a big thing to do. But yeah, you, the other thing is that. Uh, with the pandemic, what what we were uh, just debating and discussing many times is that the impact to the people who are struggling to either have the confidence to go for a job, like the people who want to listen to these these podcasts, or people who really are trying but can't find a job. Mm. Those are the people you say, well, there's a community part of this that somehow we need to reignite as well. You can't sit and hope that somewhere centrally there's a magician who's going to come out and yeah. hand out this, hand out that, and you sit there you know, with your hand out. No, it can't be like that. So there's, there's something else that needs to, you know, and again, you guys are touching all of these communication points, aren't you? All sorts of communities, all sorts of everywhere. I'm just curious about you, you know, how you how you leverage that out there. I because mean, you're in the you're in the centre of it. But you've got your reporters out there freelancing, but then yeah. there's more. There's more, you know. Well, we are, 
So it's a debate within journalism. My, my view is um, that we are there to report. We are not there to, and to inform. We're not there to, and people, some people might argue with this, that you know, we're not there yeah. to influence. Um, we have to be, the word used to always be impartial. I would say the word, I think it's probably more accurate to say. Well, fair. Uh, the word I would use mm. is fair. I think you have to be mm. fair because the, the idea that maybe, uh, you know, whatever my personal view is, what any of my colleagues' personal view is, um, that can't be, that can't dominate because no. uh, because who says I'm right and I'm quite aside from whether I'm right or not, uh, there's a lot of people who will disagree and, and if, if they think you're coming from a particular perspective, then they might lose uh, trust in what you're saying, respect in what you're saying. So I think it's very it's very difficult for us to talk about um, uh, leverage and influencing things. I, I, I'm not sure uh, that would be a role. Uh, however, some there are certainly some journalists uh, who would disagree with that, who say that it's very much yeah. it's a role to influence and change. Um, I was I'm thinking not, about leverage. Sorry, John. I meant leverage, meaning uh, there's some good things happening in one place that should be learned by others. That's what I mean. Leveraging yeah. the, the practices, not the actual... No, I get that, and I, yeah. I think we, we sometimes we sometimes do that. But um, what also has to be borne in mind is we, we are producing a uh, we are we are reporting the news that that is happening, and so maybe in Scotland tonight it's something which is a current affairs program. There is more opportunity to say, well, this is what's, and we do do that. You know, this is mm -hmm. something that's happening in one area. How could that be? Uh, how could that be introduced here? Um, uh, but it's. It is, there's so many, um, there's no one solution to all of that. No, um, well, no. So you might change one thing, then you might undermine uh, another thing. <clears throat> so what we will do is if there are particular schemes of the particularly, um, you know, uh, initiatives and of whatever they, however they're described, then, uh, and particularly charitable ones, then we, we cover we cover these a lot. Um, yeah. But as I say, it's been, I think over the last 35 years, I've seen pretty much every initiative going um, and none of them seem to have, not necessarily because of failures on their part, but maybe for whatever reason, they haven't been followed through. And, and we've had so many of these um, that uh, you, know, you, can, you can look at a trail of them behind us and poverty is still an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you must have had many career highlights and conversely mm. career lowlights. And I just wondered if there was any that stuck in your mind. So many career highlights, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to go to uh, European Cup finals, and as I said, to so a football fan and all the rest of it. Um, uh, the opening of the Scottish Parliament, so many things. But I, th I think the one that we have to come down, the probably highlight of my career, is the the independence referendum in 2014. And at 10 o'clock at night, uh, we STV replaced news at 10. And my, I remember my opening line was along the lines of the polls have now closed because <clears> two capitals, London and Edinburgh, await the outcome. Because at that point, we didn't know what the result was going to be. And I do remember thinking, this is huge for Scotland. And I've been reporting in Scotland now for more than 20 years. Everything, not everything has been leading to this point, but this is about as big as it can be for somebody who is in Scotland. Now, that, regardless of what your political view is, is Scotland going to be independent or not? You know, whether if you're a unionist, if you're an independent, if you support independence, um, either way, that's that's huge. Um, and I, so I would say that was a highlight of my career at that point, not knowing 
what was going to happen over the next 24 hours, what would be revealed over the next 24 hours. Uh, and the, the laws, the, there are many, inevitably there are many laws, um, news tends to very often dwell on, on the bad. In fact, <laughs> the best description of my job for that um, is that my job is really saying to people, good evening, and then explaining to them why it's not. But taking the levity away from it, there, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind. That, um, and I, I remember when I started out in journalism, uh, there was a Piper Alpha, there was Lockerbie, all very one after the other. And it was me, this is... Um, this is dramatic, uh, but without question, the, the low point was was Dumblane, the Dumblane shootings. Uh, just nothing to compare mm. with that. Um, mm. Not that you can compare tragedies, but I, I, just the simple fact of <clears throat> these young kids, these five year olds, and that. Uh, so I was there at school on the day, and that, that was anyone who was there will tell you how awful that was. And then I was at the inquiry itself um, when the evidence first came out, and that, that, that was just awful. So um, no question. Uh, and blame as a low point. Yeah, and just before we sort of move off the, the, the STV and your broadcasting career side of things, I've got to sort of say that, you know, from my perspective, I'm old enough to remember Morecambe and Wise, there's <laughs> uh, Ant and Deck, but John and Raman just resonate <laughs> significantly on the STV. If Raman and I are exchanging stuff like that, it tends to be because time to film um, <laughs> you know if there's 10 seconds that need to be filled and we do that it, what happens is we get some sponsorship around the sport now so it makes it less it doesn't make it so easy to do it but people yeah people tell us a lot that they they like that uh, that interchange that interaction um and you know we're good pals so it's it's uh, it's yeah, it's good it's good crack for us it's just the way we are in the office that, that, it, it comes across it comes across yeah. it's a brilliant thing to see and john, john before we also move off your career's been extensive but you've also written a few books i just wondered if you could maybe tell us uh, a wee bit more about the book writing oh I'll tell you about the books all you want i'll tell you where to get them and everything but um <laughs> <laughs> no i i um <laughs> This teacher I mentioned way back at the beginning said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And, and I heard this story from the, my mother's home village. I thought, well, it was about a, it was a tragedy involving a, a, a young woman um, and her baby. And I thought, well, if you ever are going to write a book and you don't write about this, then you know, forget it, you'll not. So I wrote a book called The Road Dance. Uh, and then I, I wrote another couple of books after that called... Um, Heartland and Last of the Line, and I found writing books a real release. News is very concise, and uh, whereas when you're writing a book, you can just let your imagination flow. So I, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed fiction writing. I wrote three, uh, one after the other, and the first of those, The Road Dance, has just been um, made into a film, um, which appeared won the Audience Award literally last week at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. So that, that was a huge thrill as well. Mm -hmm. um, it was a long way, long road to get there, but it was great to finally see the book on screen. And this summer, I, I, I'd left it for a while, the book, writing novels for a while. Um, and then I, this summer, I had a new uh, novel out called Home. Um, essentially, to answer your question, boil it down, it, it's just an escape from the, the kind of concise nature of news writing it's just a different way of writing and it's something I get, get great pleasure from I think your first book though I mean obviously a bit of a look at it as we talked earlier but 
Um, the road dance, uh, you were you're reflecting on your family's origins. I could see you were yeah. taking it to Outer Hebrides, to Carloway, um, and you dedicated the book to, to your mother, and, yeah. and your father was doing a lot of recollection for you yeah. to get the, what was life like back then? Because I think yeah. the, the book was based around just at the start of the First World War, is that right? That's right, that's right, that's story. correct, yeah. So yeah. that, that's, that's an interesting challenge for you to write about a time when you weren't there, uh, but yeah. it was a reflection and also a link to where your family came from. Quite an interesting yeah. challenge to put that together. It was, well, my mother died a long time ago, but that was her home village. So that's where we went on holiday. And so I, I the, the houses, the, the old kind of village, the old style village, um, uh, where the, the novel is set and where the film is actually filmed. I actually remember residents still in these these houses. Um, and when they talk about writing books, you know, write about what you know. Um, and I know the Western, that particular part of the Western Isles very well. There's a lot of... Um, anecdotal oral history handed down. So uh, it wasn't too difficult for me to write about it because I heard so much. I mean, it, it was way before my parents' generation as well, obviously. Um, but I heard enough stories, um, legends and all the rest of it that I, I found it okay. And, and the, um, so you've got the oral history, but there's also a degree of written history there. So, and also, as much as anything else, just being in the village itself helps you to, to bring all that stuff out. The people from there must have been proud of the book being written as well. They, that was really important to me. They, they, mm. I was slightly concerned that they might tell oh, that's that's not good at all. Fortunately, <laughs> been, yeah, that was a real, it was a real worry for me. And you know, even I was showing it to my aunts, my mother's sisters, and, <laughs> and they, I suspect if they'd said, "Oh, don't like this at all," I wouldn't have tried to get it published. But fortunately, they, they were very supportive. Um, and it's the same with the film. It was very important to me that the locals in the village. Um, where uh, they haven't, very few people have seen the film yet, but hopefully more will. But they were very enthused that it was happening. And not only that, the fact that it was filmed in the village uh, brought real interest there as to what was going on. And also it was filmed during COVID, so it actually brought some money in. The production brought some money to the community centre. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was hugely mm -hmm. important. And I think the other thing, that what, that, what it illustrates as well, John, is that you actually, you took the risk of doing that. And it's a, it's a bit like when I think about we we've got lots of lessons that various people teach us. Uh, but if you think about the people who struggle to get the will power to go and find a job or can't find a job, sometimes you have to take something out of your comfort zone and take a risk and go for it. That's what you did with that. But you it was very fulfilling for you. But you did take a risk doing it. Yeah, I did so take a risk a, um, uh, because it was it's a strange <clears> thing with a book when you write a book. It's like a child. It's like you nurtured this thing, and then it's like sending your child off to school. How how's it going to fare? So it is like that. Um, if if I've, there was to be any message from this, it would be twofold. It is that first of all, you know, you, you're going to you're going to have dreams. You're going to have ambitions. Don't let them lie because you'll regret not giving it a go. If you give it a go and it doesn't work, at least you tried. You've got to give it a go. Uh, and a key part of that is is actually discipline. It's a case of not just wishing to do it but actually putting in place everything you will need to give you the best chance of making that happen, of fulfilling whatever that ambition happens to be. It could be writing a book, it could be it could be whatever it happens to be, whatever, you know, different people have different interests. But there's no point in just thinking about it. You've got to actually pursue it and you've got to have the discipline to pursue it. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. what you're suggesting there, John, is that people don't say, I was going to write a book, to coin a phrase, it's a good name for a charity, I was going to. 
Ah, yeah, yeah. I was going to write a book. I was going to write a book. Forgive me for interrupting, but you're, no, you're no. absolutely I was going no, to do this. I was going to do that. We've all heard that. John, <laughs> seriously, congratulations on the fact that uh, your, uh, your, your novel and your, your uh, film has uh, won the award. It's fantastic. Uh, and congratulations on that. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another couple of questions just before we finish here, John. Yeah. Uh, you've written books, but I just wondered if uh, on the other side of things that you've have ever been inspired by any books. Um, I enjoyed reading books. Uh, actually, in terms of inspiration, I actually get more inspiration from lyricists. Um, people who write you know, uh, songs. Uh, I, I've actually probably get more creative influence from that than I have from books. There's a, there are a few uh, non-fiction books which I really enjoy and I've been inspired. For example, I, I, my hero is Neil Armstrong, the first man in the moon, I think, as an individual and what, what was achieved, I think, is, is, still, is still incredible. Um, but I, was I inspired by possibly not? What inspires me is hearing a way of phrasing something or hearing an idea and think, oh, right, that, that, that's, that's what I get inspiration from. Um, so I, well, certainly creative inspiration from. Um, but, you know, if you, in terms of books, uh, there is a, a fantastic book called Dance Called America by Dr. Jim Hunter. And the reason it's so good is it's basically the Scottish diaspora into North America. That's how Scots left Scotland and went into North America. Mm -hmm. um, and just the fact of what, Scots achieved and what Scots are capable of um, is, a, is an inspiration to any of us. Now, as we now understand history a bit more, some of that, particularly in America, is maybe not, maybe a bit darker than we would like it to be. Um, but Scots, by and large, went over and made very successful lives for themselves in completely alien, a completely alien place, and there's inspiration to be taken from that. One of the things that we often say on here, John, is that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Scotland yes. has always punched above our weight. Uh, we've got some fantastic local people to ourselves. Over in Paisley, the Coates, so many people don't realise just how wealthy they were actually in relative terms. The Coates that had the mills over in Paisley yeah. uh, would have been the equivalent of Bill Gates in today's yeah. terms and obviously we've got the, the Carnegie etc that you you, you yeah. would be mentioning about the first Scots over in America so we've punched above our weights and that's so important at this time when we've got the potential of the economy it's surging at the moment great opportunities for people to just fall in their footsteps so totally agree with that another question I'd like to just ask if we can and that is you must have come across a number of people that you've, you know, thousands over the, your, your lifetime and your career that you've interviewed. And I just wonder if there's any specific ones that have inspired you, John. I would, uh, the expectation would be there would be, you know, very famous people, politicians and all the rest of it. And, and people always think, who's the most famous person you've met and all that sort of stuff. And that's all interesting. It's all part of the job. I have to say for me, um, it's actually not those people that are the most interesting. They're interesting, nice people broadly. Um, but there's a couple of fascinating people over the years I've, I've met. I remember a guy called Joe Henry, who was a former Japanese prisoner of war, um, and how he had dealt with that. Um, I, I remember interviewing him a few years ago and just been inspired that this, this man's grace, I suppose, would you describe it, given all that he'd been through. I remember um, the cyclist Graham Aubrey, I remember him talking openly about... Um, he had attempted suicide and, and, and for the first time explaining, clarifying for me, we always say, how could they do that to their family? Well, he explained how, how that is. They don't see it in those terms. I always like the interviews that you learn something from. 
as opposed to what you expect to hear, you know. And and I certainly learned from Joe Henry. I certainly learned from Graham Aubrey. And I remember uh, I mentioned uh, Dumblain earlier on. I remember speaking to a mother of one of the Dumblain victims who spoke um, on the twentieth anniversary. I think it was. She hadn't had never spoken before, so she spoke at the twentieth anniversary, um, and basically said, I, you know, I'm not going to be defined as, a, as uh, the mother of a Dumblain victim, and, and the strength of character in that because it was so. Horrifying what happened. I'm not sure mm-hmm. the very fact that anybody could could continue um, with any sort of normal life after that. But the fact that she not only did so, as so many of the families have, um, but have actually, you know, I'm not going to be defined by what that evil man did. And I, I find that inspirational as well. Absolutely, John. Is there? Is there? A, I just have to ask on the other side of it. Is there anything? I mean, I can imagine you guys have a laugh in the studio. Uh, now and again, but is there was there any story or interview etc. that you just couldn't help yourself but laugh at it, and probably couldn't even stick to the script because it was funny. Was there a story like that? that you could tell <laughs> I was about? well, I was very fortunate to have interviewed two of the funniest guys I've, I've ever interviewed are, are Billy Connolly and Kevin Bridges, and um, the reason for that is you sometimes interview comedians who. Uh, you know, they've got a routine, they've developed a routine, they've written a routine. No. Obviously, certainly Kevin Bridges does that as well, but fundamentally, they're just funny guys to their bones. And just sitting with these guys. Now, I couldn't even remember the stories they told me, but I just remember sitting with these guys and just laughing, 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 because um, they're just funny guys. Uh, so I, I, that's, that's what I would say. If you, if you can get somebody... I, I, for me, comedy is going to be the hardest, one of the hardest mm-hmm. things there is. You know, you can sing yeah. and people will applaud. You can act and people will applaud. But to be funny, people don't laugh, and it's a very natural thing laughing. You can't force it. <laughs> you know that must be a, a cold, cold place to be. And these guys go up there and do it. I remember Kevin Bridges saying he, he gets told Billy Connolly the same actually, but Kevin Bridges particularly saying a lot of people say to him in terms of you know I was going. Um, I remember Kevin Bridges saying to me uh, that several people say to him, "Oh, I, I can do what you do." And he said, and his argument is, well, I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> I did. Go and do it. Don't be saying don't do it. You know, you, you may well be, but, you know, do uh, it. So exactly. I think there's a, a truth in that. Uh, anyway, John, this is the last question. And uh, it's the question that we ask all our guests again. And that's, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? And what piece of advice would you hand to the next generation? I think the best, and, and it's not an original piece of advice, but uh, I, I, I think the the best thing I was ever told is be honest to yourself. You know, don't don't try and be what you're not. Don't do things that you're not convinced by. Be honest with yourself. Do I want to do this? Is this the right thing to do? Um, that's the way I, I was brought up. And always, um, it's all going to sound kind of obvious, but it's true. Uh, just treat other people as you would be treated yourself. I, I think that's, there's a very... There's a famous line from Bill Clinton, the former US president, I see, and he makes a point wherever he is of, he doesn't just talk to the famous people. Let me give you a very brief anecdote. Bill Clinton, I read this in a a book. Um, Bill Clinton, it was when Hillary Clinton was running for president. And this reporter was waiting in uh, a lobby, nothing to do with the Clintons, just happened to be in the lobby. And the door opened and Hillary Clinton came out with her entourage and they all swept by this guy sitting in the seat. But Bill Clinton went by and said, how's your day going? And mm-hmm. 
the guy said, I will never forget that. And <clears> I think it's just that show respect to, to everybody. Treat others as you would want to be treated. So, you know, don't think you're above anybody. Um, just treat people as you would expect to be treated. And, you know, that's, um, it's a, not an original piece of advice, but through my life, I've always tried to do that. And I think, I think it, um, I think it works for, for everyone. Yeah. Great, great piece of advice, John. And just remember that the next time I'm running past you, don't ignore me. I'll try not to. <laughs> so I was on a call this morning. One very final thing I would say to you on that advice, on the, on the terms of advice. By the way, when I'm when I'm going by you, I've maybe been running a short time before. I can barely I can barely see the road. In front of me. I can hardly breathe. Um, the, the one thing I would say is, um, and this applies very much to people to. So I came from a working class background, went to a working class school, and I, I touched on this earlier on, this idea that you belong. You know, that there's a very working class thing, I shouldn't be here. I'm going to get that tap on the shoulder. They call it imposter syndrome. I'm going to get that tap on the shoulder. I had that for years. Somebody's going to tap me in the shoulder and say, you've been fun out on your way. Mm. Um, and I think it's very important for people to know that you have every right to be there, you know, and yeah. that you 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 belong. And... Uh, don't feel like you don't. Don't feel I shouldn't be here. You'll be there for a reason. John Mackay, thanks very much for joining us here. And I was going to podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this afternoon. Yeah, thank thanks, you very John. much for having me. And thank you both. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Uh, it was good. It was good.